We turn this morning to the book of Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. Throughout the week, my thoughts have been on the subject of the manna as found in the book of Exodus chapter 16 and also Numbers chapter 11. And it's interesting how God guides your mind because as I arrived here today and I was setting up one of the first cars that was here, it was Sister Faye, she pulled up and she said, I've got a question for you. And as she began asking her question or making mention of her question, what she had to say in the first sentence that she said, back when God gave the children of Israel the manna. And when she said that, I just started laughing and I backed up two or three steps because my subject this morning, Lord willing, will be entitled, is entitled, Lessons from the Manna. And I'm always thankful when God guides the congregation or portions of it to study and think about during the week what the minister has had laid on his heart during the week. And so we turn this morning to the book of Exodus chapter 16 and a message that I've entitled Lessons from the Manna. Now I've had this in my mind for some time, the account of God giving manna to Israel to eat during their wanderings in the wilderness. And there are many lessons that we can learn and benefit from, from this account even today. As we turn to Exodus chapter 16, first of all, we want to consider together the account of what is taking place, and we'll look at some of these passages and maybe skip over some of them for the sake of time, because we know that it's warm, and at 1 o'clock today they're planning on rain, and we've got to break down the equipment, so this will not be one of my 70-minute sermons. And everybody said, Amen. So no 70-minute sermons today. However, we do hope that we... Maybe it's been at least 50 minutes. Anyway. This takes place right after the children of Israel are delivered out of Egyptian bondage. You know that, as we studied last week together, Israel was in bondage, and they had been in Egypt for a period of time. And the reason they were in Egypt is because they had sold their brother into bondage, Joseph. We studied Joseph last week. They, these patriarchs moved with envy and jealousy. They sold their brother into slavery. And as you know, God raised him up. God was with him. God overruled. God delivered. And God used that circumstance to deliver even the entire nation from starving to death through Joseph's position of authority in Egypt. Well, as the children of Israel go into Egypt to find sustenance and survival, they never leave. They stay in Egypt, and there arose a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph and that feared not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he became paranoid, and the Egyptians became paranoid of the goodliness, as it were, of the children of Israel, they became afraid, and they said, these Hebrews are stronger, these Hebrews have children easier. Let us afflict them, lest they rise up, and they challenge us. They take our nation, and we end up as slaves. So the nation of Egypt enslaves the children of Israel. Israel is enslaved by the nation of Egypt. This was a cruel bondage. They made them not only build great cities, 
But as they began to afflict them more and more, they would make them gather the supplies that they would use to make the bricks to build the buildings in the cities. It was a very cruel form of oppression and slavery. And the whole time they cry out to God, God help us, God help us, God help us. And finally, God always hears, but God acted on those pleas. God acted on those petitions. Now, as we think about that, just to follow a rabbit's trail today, certainly God was concerned with the well-being of his people. God is always concerned with the well-being of his people. But we know that God had another agenda in the world in that day. In fact, God always has many agendas in the world, things that are right, things that further his cause. As we observe from God's words to Moses concerning Pharaoh, as Paul quotes in Romans chapter 9, one of the reasons that God deals with these peoples, Israel and Egypt, the way that he does is because he was going to build a name for himself in the world that all nations might fear him. And so the furtherance of his name in the world was one of the reasons that some of these things took place here in the book of Exodus. Another reason is the establishment of the nation of Israel out of affliction in a form of deliverance Because what we read in the Old Testament is a microcosm. It foreshadows and represents the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. And so even as we study Egypt and Israel's deliverance out of Egypt through God raising up Moses, we can learn lessons about God raising up our Lord Jesus Christ, sending his only begotten son into the world to die for us, to deliver us from a much greater Egypt than the nation in the Middle East today in northeast Africa, where Egypt is. God intended to deliver us from our Egypt, our bondage, our slavery, to sin. And he did so through the sending of his son Jesus into the world. Moses would speak of this in Deuteronomy chapter 18 when he said that God will raise up a prophet like unto him, and the people will hear him, they will gather unto him. What sort of a prophet, as it were, was Moses? He was a man that ushered in deliverance, and this deliverance that... Egypt's experience was one that was described even as a a redemption, a buying back. But at the same time, Moses was a central figurehead who interceded between the people and with God. Our Lord intercedes for us. Moses was a man that ushered in a covenant by which God's people would worship him. Jesus, by his death, ushered in a covenant by which God's people worship him, the new covenant covenant. Moses ushers in the old by God's decree, and then Jesus ushers in the new. And so God had many agendas, if you will, many objectives in the world here in the book of Exodus. That which was written aforehand was written for our learning, Paul said. The things in the law are a shadow of good things to come, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10. Jesus said in John 5, search the scriptures, for in them You think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. What we read here has greater spiritual implications all through it. How's that for a short mini-sermon tangent? This is right after Egypt. Egypt parallels sin. Deliverance from Egypt parallels freedom, liberty, and salvation. The people are delivered from bondage and oppression. Through Christ, we have been delivered from bondage and oppression to sin. The old master has been drowned in the sea, as it were, 
And we are now free through the Lord Jesus Christ, our new master. In Exodus chapter 16, which we're going to skip chapter 15 for now, but we're going to go back to chapter 15 as we begin looking at the mindset of the children of Israel at this moment. Chapter 16 of Exodus, they took their journey from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came unto the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departing out of the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. More on that later. And the children of Israel said unto them, unto whom? Unto Moses and Aaron, would to God that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots, what is a flesh pot? It's where they boil food. Think of a stew or a soup. That we had died in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and when we did eat bread to the full. For ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. The Lord said unto Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. Bread from heaven. And I'm, I'm resisting the temptation to get ahead of myself in the notes and make comments on everything that's taken place. So just understand, we're going to come back to what we're reading, but I'm going to give you the narrative first. The people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or no. And it shall come to pass that on the sixth day shall they prepare that which they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. And Moses and Aaron said unto all the children of Israel, At even then ye shall know that the Lord hath brought you out from the land of Egypt. And in the morning then shall ye see the glory of the Lord, for that he heareth your murmurings against the Lord. And what are we that you murmur against us? Now what Moses just said there is, when you complain to us and we're doing what God has told us to do, you're not complaining about us. You're complaining about God. Because we're just doing what he told us. This would happen when they rejected the structure of government when they wanted a king. God tells Samuel, they've not rejected you. Well, they've rejected me. Moses said, what, what are we? What are we that you murmur against us? This is not my fault. Moses said, This shall be when the Lord shall give you in the evening flesh to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, for that the Lord heareth your murmurings, which ye murmur against him. And what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. And Moses spake unto Aaron, and he commands Aaron to command the children of Israel, and the cloud of God reveals itself to them. They see the glory of the Lord in the cloud. Now God speaks and he tells them that I've heard the murmurings of the children of Israel. Speak unto them saying, at even shall ye eat flesh. We won't comment on the flesh today, but what he has reference to there is in the eventide, at the evening time, they would be 
a flock of quail would be sent among them, and they would kill the quail, and they would eat the flesh of the quail. Now here, in this chapter, it would lead you to believe that that happened on a daily basis. If you read the future account of this in the book of Numbers chapter 11, it almost seems to indicate that this was something that occurred on special occasions. Either way, God gave them flesh to eat, and that flesh that he gave them to eat was in the form of quail. By the way, later on, because they complained, God said, I'm going to give you so much quail and so much bread that you're going to have to eat it, so much so that you become nauseous and you vomit it all up through your nose. And you may think, that's gross. Why'd you just say that? Because that's what God said to them. It's in the Word. You've complained, so I'm going to fill your belly to the extent that you by reason of gluttony, vomit everything that you just ate up because I'm taking this seriously and obviously you are not. He gives him flesh in the form of quail. Now as far as this bread, and you notice that God says, I'm going to give you bread from heaven. What is this bread? You can read it. When the dew that lay was gone up, behold, the face of the wilderness, there lay a small round thing, as small as the hoarfrost on the ground. In fact, it's described as having the appearance, in a sense, of the hoarfrost. And that word there is gray, gray frost. And if you've ever seen it, if you've ever been out in the woods hiking or camping or hunting, and you get these, when it's very cold, you can see this type of frost where the, the dew freezes, this gray frost. They say that this looks like that. When they see it, they said one to another, it is manna. For they wist not what it was. And Moses said unto them, this is the bread which the Lord hath given you to eat. Now as we begin describing for you the manna, you notice they called it manna for they wist not what it was. One of the explanations or the definitions of this word manna, and it actually comes from two Hebrew words, literally means, what is it? So they walk out and they say, what is it? And they name it, what is it? They see it, they say, what is it? They name it, what is it? The creativity in the way that they name things. We don't know what it is, but... So we're going to call it exactly what we said about it. Moses said unto them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. So you think about this. They walk outside, they leave their tents, and the ground is covered in small little edible kernels of what God calls bread, and there are descriptions of it that we'll share with you in a moment. Now in verse 14, we read that it's a small round thing, as small as the hoarfrost on the ground. In verse 31... We read, the house of Israel called the name thereof manna, and it was like a coriander seed, white, and like wafers made with honey. Okay, so it's small, it's white. As you see from this passage and others, it was hard enough that it could be ground up to make bread. It tasted like a wafer mixed with honey. In Numbers chapter 11, another place that mentions the manna, It says that it has the taste of oil as the oil 
has been, as it's been cooked, it has the taste of fresh oil. This is Numbers 11.8. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in mills and beat it into a mortar and baked it in pans and made cakes of it, and the taste of it was as the taste of fresh oil. Now, that has caused some theologians trouble. They say, does it taste like bread? Does it taste like honey? Or does it taste like oil? Last time I checked, food can taste like more than one thing at once. This past week, I think it was maybe either this weekend or the weekend before, Lydia decided to make a carrot cake. And she left it because she went outside and played in the oven. And it was in the oven two to three times as long as it was supposed to be in the oven. And we came back in, and lo and behold, there is carrot cake. And we got it out of the oven, and Rachel said, it's burned, it's no good. Well, Elijah and I, we attacked that like a couple of zombies. I mean, we were shredding it like the loaves and the fishes at the, the Lord's ministry. We were ripping it in pieces and eating off of it, and then 30 minutes later, we all get in trouble. Well, why was it there? It was burned, supposedly. Well, she goes on to cut it into thirds and doubles it up and puts the icing in it. You know how many flavors you can taste in a carrot cake? You taste all kinds of flavor in a carrot cake. I don't know why they call it carrot cake. It doesn't taste like carrots to me. But you taste the icing, you taste all the ingredients. It can taste like different things to different people. More than likely, it tasted like a honey-flavored bread that also tasted like oil when it was cooked. It's not a quandary to get into. Does it taste like bread, honey, or oil? Well, it can taste like all three at once. You might ask yourself the question, is there some natural cause for this? There have been all kinds of people who have tried to come up with natural causes for the miracles in God's Word, and I would just insist that the miracles in God's Word are the miracles of God's Word. It's not that overnight you have a plague of bugs that come through and leave honeydew from whatever it is that they're eating and doing, and they would pick up the honeydew and eat the honeydew. That was one theory that I read in an encyclopedic resource this week. Well, it could have been the honeydew of insects. Oh, isn't that appetizing? The book of Psalm 78 describes it as actually being the angel's food. Psalm 78, though he had commanded the clouds from above and opened the doors of heaven and had rained down manna upon them to eat, and had given them of the corn of heaven, man did eat angels' food. He sent them meat to the full. He rained flesh also upon them as dust, and feathered fowls like as the sand of the sea. What does Psalm 78 describe this is being, that's a psalm of Asaph, describes it as being the very food of angels themselves. What do angels eat? Do angels eat? Apparently angels eat manna. There's not a natural cause to this. God is supernaturally, miraculously working, and this fell with the dew. Sometimes it describes it as on top of it. Sometimes it describes it as under it. Would you believe that Jewish theologians argued about whether or not it was on top of it or under it? Does it matter? It's on the ground. And it's wet. Because dew. Sometimes people, we must love to argue. It must be intrinsic 
to the soul of a man to want to debate if we're arguing about was the dew under or on top of the manna. Doesn't matter. God gave manna, that's what matters. God gave manna, and that is what matters. As you see from Numbers chapter 11, it was eventually baked. We noticed that. They made a mortar of it. They baked it. They made actual bread out of it. It was described as bread when God gave it. But they cook it. They find various ways to produce it. They made cakes of it. The taste of it, I presume that to mean the taste of the cakes, was as the taste of fresh oil. And they ate it. At one point, and we'll just mention this in passing, now you understand that they had this the entire time they were in the wilderness. I don't know if you've ever been to a desert. Brother Rick and Sister Colleen spent a portion of their lives in Arizona. Brother Kenneth just moved back to Arizona. I drove through Arizona to California and back. And I can tell you that if I happen to be stranded wandering in the middle of northern Arizona, anywhere other than around Flagstaff with all the evergreens and the oaks, if I'm wandering through Arizona, do you know what there is in Arizona to eat? Rocks. There are rocks. There is dust. Occasionally there's a little bushy fern of a thing here and there. There's nothing to eat in the wilderness. That's where they are. They're in a desert wasteland. Now, by the way, they wandered 40 years. We're going to come back to that thought in a minute. How long did they have to wander? If you get on Google Maps and you take where they began and where they ended, you can walk there in days. It wasn't that they were lost. You know, Moses, you're the worst navigator ever. Forty years it took us to take a month's journey at most. Now, you know why they wandered? Because they murmured. But the entire time God gave them the manna, they began to complain about the manna, calling it light bread. We're tired of this light bread. I've heard preachers rightly compare that to the story of grace. Never, ever, ever... Let us tire of hearing the story of salvation by the free and unmerited grace of God. It is not light bread. I do not tire of it. I do not get tired of hearing John 6, John 10, John 17, Romans 8, or Ephesians chapter 1 preached. Praise God for the message of grace. Do you amen that? A bunch of amens and a honk. (laughs) Those on the live stream didn't hear a little baby scream, honk, honk. That will be the highlight of my day. Say, what was the best thing about church today? Little baby says, honk, honk. The manna continued until Joshua chapter 5. As they go in... Forty years later, the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the old corn of the land. The gardens they didn't till up and the plants they didn't sow and they didn't water. They harvested the land of the Canaanite. When they'd eaten of the corn of the old land, neither had any of the children of Israel manna anymore. 
But they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When that providence was no longer needed, God ceased to give it. When it was no longer needed, God ceased to give it. Back to the book of Exodus chapter 16, one final note about the manna. The last place that the manna existed was in the Ark of the Covenant. Exodus chapter 16 and verse 33, Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer full of manna therein and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. Within that Ark of the Covenant, whatever happened to it, wherever it ended up, there was a bowl of manna that was preserved in that ark as a testimony for all generations of what God had done for them, feeding them supernaturally, miraculously, I should say, in the wilderness. And there were so many ways that God had fed them and taken care of them. I already mentioned the quails. There were times that God caused a rock to split and pour out water to Give them water to drink, lest they die of thirst in the wilderness. He took care of them. Was it easy, their lives? No. It was a lot harder because of what they did. What's just a few days wandering in a desert to go from where you were to Canaan's land, a land overflowing with milk and honey? If I know that I'm going there, Aren't all the sufferings of the journey easier to bear? By the way, do you see some parallels there with heaven? You better. There are sufferings here, but God will provide, and then one day there is a place of rest. There's a place of plenty that we didn't even do anything to get or to earn. It's all by the Lord Jesus and His grace. So many parallels here. But there's a few points that I want to give you, and we want to call these our takeaways from today's lesson. First of all, let's go back to Exodus chapter 15 and the closing verses of Exodus chapter 14 and observe what had just taken place. I already made mention of the fact that God had rescued them, delivered them out of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 14, you had a little irregularity in human life. The children of Israel are pinned between Pharaoh's armies and the Red Sea. And it's not the Reed Sea, it's the Red Sea. It's not a scribal error, it's the Red Sea. The Reed Sea's knee deep. The Red Sea is not. You say, well, that, that's impossible. That's why it's a miracle. That's how miracles work. When the impossible happens, by the power of one who has authority over the natural realm. In Exodus chapter 14, the last of the plagues, and there were many various plagues that God dished out upon Egypt... Moses stretches out his hands, and the Red Sea parts. You might have in mind the images from the Charlton Heston movie, The Ten Commandments. That was a 
technological CGI marvel in that day to pull that special effect off. Now it's easier and much more realistic. But think about it. The water's congealed. A wind blew, and it pushes the waters. They cross through as if on dry ground. Pharaoh follows them. What happens to Pharaoh and his military? They are drowned in the sea. Pharaoh did not survive. Why? Because God would have the final say in every way, in every sense. God wins. On one end of the Red Sea, they complained. Ah, Moses, you led us here and now we're all going to die. Oh, ye of little faith. You say, is there a lesson for that in me? I encourage you to go home today and read Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 about people who are made partakers of the heavenly calling who do not enter into the rest of Christ in this world because of unbelief. If I walk in unbelief, I don't experience rest. And the lesson that God gave us in Hebrews 3 and 4 of people just like you and me, partakers of the heavenly calling, holy brethren, is go back and read this example lest I fall by the same example of unbelief. And we're not talking about losing your salvation. We're talking about losing your rest. There remaineth therefore a rest for the people of God. The word rest there translates from the same word as Sabbath. There's Sabbath to be experienced in Christ. How? Through believing. Through steadfastness in our belief. On the other side of the sea, they sing the song of Moses and the. They talk about how Pharaoh is drowned in the sea, then sang Moses and the children of Israel the song of the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him a habitation. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host as he cast into the sea. They're worshiping God through singing. And you, you kind of expect what we always see in these fairy tale princess stories, and they all lived happily ever, la- ever after. But would you believe they don't all live happily ever after? Because when you begin the 16th chapter of the book of Exodus, as we began our reading today, what did they do? And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron. Our takeaways, number one, is that Even after all that God had done for them, because of their unbelief, they were quick to murmur. What should be the response? What was the response of Joseph last week in all of his affliction? And we don't want to make light of their situation. They were where? They were in a wilderness. They were running out of food. They took lots of food with them from Egypt. It was scary. What's going to happen to us? Did you bring us out here to die? Is what they asked him. But their response should have been as Joseph. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. To serve God faithfully in the midst of trials, without murmuring. Joseph never murmured. By the, word, uh, by the way, the word murmur means to quietly complain. 
Now, there are times that Winslets complain by screaming at each other. And I won't use my kids as an example. I'll use my brother's kids. But he posts on Facebook all the time about how his kids get into drag-out fistfights every day. You have two boys that are that close together, and it's just an inevitability. They're going to be boxing with each other every day. Sometimes we settle our disputes by screaming at each other. They weren't screaming. They were just bellyaching, grumbling, complaining, murmuring. I don't like this. I don't like that. One of the things we're going to notice today is that God does not like murmuring. Well, their situation looked dire. Does God say, well, that's okay? No. Murmuring is always wrong. Murmuring is always wrong. They murmur. And according to Hebrews 3 and 4, their murmuring was a result of unbelief in their heart. Strengthen your faith, and you will not be as inclined to murmur. When you find yourself murmuring, understand the root is a lack of strength of faith. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Number two, even though they murmured, God was merciful and gave them food anyway. Now, I don't know about you, but if my kids were murmuring and complaining and whining and saying bad things about me, they might have to go spend some time in their room first. I don't know about giving you food. I'm not too happy with you. But God hears, and God gave them food. He provided for them. Why? Because God is that merciful. And so we learn a lesson here as well about God's mercy. Now, a caveat and a disclaimer, well, that means that, you know, I can just abuse God's grace. No, because God's mercy, His patience, as it were, eventually would come to an end with them. In Numbers chapter 14, a very famous occurrence in Scripture, they murmured, and because they murmured, their carcasses would fall in the wilderness. Your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness, and all that were numbered of you, according to your whole number from 20 years up and older, which have murmured against me, the reason they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years is because they complained. And God says, fine, you're not going to enjoy Canaan's land. Joshua's going in. <clears throat> Joshua's going in. Who else is going in? Caleb is going in. They're going to be 80-year-old men. I encourage you who are more aged in years to go read the account of Joshua and Caleb going into Canaan's land. They ride in on horses and they say, we're taking our land. Forty years I've waited for this land. They're not decrepit. They rush in there. They say, I want that one. They go and they take it. But to the rest of those who are over the age of 20, God says, your carcasses are going to fall in the wilderness because you murmured. Another famous account, Numbers chapter 21, when the children of Israel complained again. 
They spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? How many times are they going to ask? There is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. You mean the angel's food? Food from heaven? There were times that God said, I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth and start a new people with you, Moses. And what does Moses do? Have at it! No, that's not what Moses does. Moses intercedes on their behalf. Moses intercedes on their behalf. And God, in His mercy, responds to the beckonings of His interceding servant, and God forgives them. God is rich in mercy and slow to wrath. But what does God do here? And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. One of the things that I've heard, because we, as Americans, often equate anything negative with the wicked one, is, well, God never does things that are mean or that hurt people to society in general. Let me just read that for you again. You know, to answer the God never does mean things, first of all, it's not a mean thing. It's called justice. Justice is not mean. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. The people pray. They beg Moses pray. So what does Moses do? Moses prays, and then God said, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole. This is the brazen serpent. And when the people look at it, they will live. What does that point to right there? According to Jesus in John chapter 3, himself. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so shall Jesus be lifted up. And through Jesus we find healing and strength. God's patience eventually came to the end and they would be judged for their murmuring. And it was not pleasant. But even in that, God gave deliverance. Number three, this is a lesson in trust, and it's a lesson in the priority of God's Sabbath. How is it a lesson in trust? And we'll be quick with these final points. It's a lesson in trust because if they gathered more than they needed for a particular day, what would happen to it? Now, you know me, I like to gather, and I like to save, and I like to store, and I'm talking about when there's economic collapse coming and we fear hyperinflation, I'm talking about bullets, I'm talking about food, I'm talking about seeds, I'm talking about silver coins, because that's just how I roll. And that was all lost in an unfortunate boating accident, right? That's what they always say, to say they don't have it anymore. I'm all about prepping. God says you're not allowed to prep. Don't save it. If you keep it overnight, it's going to breed worms and it's going to stink. What happened? Some of them didn't believe Moses. Moses, he got mad at this. They laid it up till the morning. Some of these people, and by the way, the stuff that was left on the ground melted in the sun. Some of these people didn't believe him. They kept it, and it bred worms, verse 20 of Exodus 16, and it stank, and Moses was wroth with them told you not to do that. He was angry. 
That's a lesson in providence. By the way, in the Old Testament and the New, we find examples, we find language of our what? Our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Where do you think that verbiage comes from? The manna. Give us our daily sustenance. That's a part of the model prayer. Even for us to pray today. Give us this day our daily bread. In the manna, the children of Israel learned to trust in God. For providence, for daily provision. It could not be based upon their saving their gathering, their sowing, their reaping, their cultivating. They were completely dependent at the hand of God. And so they learned a lesson on trust. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus quotes that in Matthew 4. But there's another beautiful lesson here, and as we are here gathered today on the Lord's Day, some in person, some at home, This is the Lord's day. What happened if you kept manna overnight? Stank. Bread worms. Worms infested it. And yet, one day of the week, they were to gather enough for two days, prepare it that day, and consume it the next Every Friday, they were to gather enough for Saturday as well. And guess what the Word of God said about it? It never bred worms. It did not stink. Exodus 16, 24. So fathom this for a moment. Let that sink in your mind. If you keep it more than a day, it's going to get worms, it's going to stink But on Friday, the day before Saturday, which was the Sabbath in the Old Testament, you gather enough for two days and it will not breed worms, it will not stink, because that is my day. God supernaturally, I've said that, and I mean miraculously, but both words apply, miraculously, providentially sustained them. What does that teach you? The priority of the Sabbath What a powerful lesson for them to understand the importance of the Sabbath. You gather it, you keep it overnight, it's going to stink. But on this day, I'll see to it that the manna keeps all through the Sabbath, so all you have to do is rest and eat on that day. God displayed the importance of His day. And while we don't have the Sabbath in that sense today because Jesus fulfilled it and Jesus is our Sabbath, this is the Lord's day. And it is a day that we are to honor and reverence And, when possible, present our bodies a living sacrifice unto the Lord. I would encourage all of us to gather on the Lord's day in whatever way that we have available because God commands it and God deserves it. It is right. And if it's right to do so and God commands it, then what does it say outside of crazy circumstances like disease and persecution and pandemics when people have to scatter? Well, that would be wrong to not worship. And if it's wrong to not worship, what is the word that God's word uses for that? Sin. It would be sinful for me to forsake the assembling of of myself after the manner of some is, according to Hebrews. That's verbiage straight out of the book of Hebrews. 
God is giving them a powerful lesson on the importance of the Sabbath. And this is something that every pastor on this planet right now is concerned with. So let me just tell you the pastor's heart. And I know that we're tarrying on and we need to bring it to a close because at some point rain's going to come from that direction and we've got to put up all the equipment before it gets here. Every single pastor on planet Earth is worried right now about people who love Jesus falling away because they have gotten out of the habit of being in the house of God on Sunday because of a pandemic threat. Might I remind all of us, and praise God you are here or you are tuned in honoring the Lord's Day, but might I remind all of us that this is the Lord's Day and He commands us to devote this day to Him. It is not a negotiable thing. This is not an extra day of the weekend to go to the lake, but this is the Lord's Day. I said lake because as I was leaving the subdivision, there were a group of people in their early 20s loading up multiple vehicles, and I could tell that's where they were going. You can't social distance, guys. What are you doing? Lastly, the manna that God gave them was given to them for another reason. And what do, what do we say here? We begin our messages, and we want to run as quickly as we can to where? To the cross. No matter what passage you take, no matter what subject you speak on, you go as quickly as you can to the cross. As Jesus preached to a multitude who followed him because he fed them fish, Jesus tells them in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. He that eats of me shall never hunger. What is Jesus telling them in John chapter 6? That he has manna for us to ingest today. That we can partake of him, that we can enjoy him, and in partaking of him we find food for our souls, the sustenance to get us through this wandering pilgrim's land as it is in one sense, the wilderness of sin, this world around us. He is our bread of life. We ingest, as it were, through the gospel, through worship, over and over, the Savior. We partake of Him as we worship Him, as we praise Him, as we honor Him, as we hear the Word preached, as we sing to Him, as we read His Word, and we find food for our souls. I trust that our souls have been fed by the sharing of God's Word today.